0: It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on serious XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams, and I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. This past week, the Equality Act passed the House, and while there have been many versions, I think since the 70s, the modern version of this bill was first passed in 2019 with a bipartisan vote of 236 to 173, but it eventually died in Mitch mcconnell's graveyard when he refused to bring it to the floor for a vote and all you know actually even if it had come up for a vote our ex would have vetoed it anyway so fast forward to this past week where it passed with a vote of 224 to 206 and now heads to the senate and while lawmakers in washington are attempting to pass this historic civil rights legislation that would provide legal protections to lgbtq plus americans you <laughs> There are lawmakers in 14 states that have proposed anti-LGBTQ legislation. Joining us to talk about the Equality Act and what it means for the lives of many is David Johns, the Executive Director of the National Black Justice Coalition, MBJC. It's a civil rights organization dedicated to the empowerment of Black, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people, including people with HIV and AIDS. Before joining the MBJC, David was appointed as the first executive director of the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans by President Barack Obama. Welcome to the show for the very first time, David Johns. Hey, David.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm
0: excited to be here. So I'm going to start where everybody starts on the show when this is their first time and you're going to do a little storytelling because we believe in the power of storytelling here on Sunday Civics. And why don't you share with us the story of your first civic action, if you can remember.
1: I, I don't know that my mind will allow me to remember the the very first, um, but one, uh, an early and really important foundational civic action um, that I think is important as it relates to this story um, or the conversation we'll have rather than not the story, is that when I was um, teaching, so anyone who knows me knows that I care uh, tremendously about our babies. Um, uh, I've never met a child who has to be born. Um, I'm a sociologist. I'm uh, finishing my PhD at uh, Columbia in the spirit of Asa Hilliard, a sociologist, um, who said, I've never met a child in particular, a black child who is not a genius. There's no secret to how we support them. We first acknowledge them as human um, and then second, we support them with love. And I started my career as a kindergarten teacher. Um, now I'm sitting down, but uh, if, uh, if I was standing up, you'd see I'm six five. I was literally like kindergarten cop for those who are old enough to catch the reference. And uh, my kindergarten class um, did not have a single black boy. In fact, there was not a single black boy out of the 60 students that were kindergartners at the school uh, where I was an educator. And the idea that my babies um, would not have black boys um, to see and to play with and imagine futures with vexed me. Um, I um, was acutely aware of the fact that in the teaching profession, the pre-K through 12, or really K through 12 teaching profession, more than 98% of, of teachers are white women. Um, and so my presence as one of few black male educators, the only black male classroom teacher in my school building made me more hyper-visible than I already am um, given my physical presence um, in the world. Uh, and all of this to say that uh, a civic action that I decided to engage in much to the chagrin of the administrators at the school where I was teaching uh, was to organize. And I organized a group of teachers who understood the importance of diversity um, and uh, engage a number of parents um, who also understood um, the value and benefits of diversity with a capital D. Um, and we canvassed the community. Um, when I asked why there was not um, uh, a single Black boy um, in kindergarten, um, uh, someone told me that a senior leader at the school told me that um, none had applied. Um, and so I said, Well, sure, we can fix that. Um, And at least take away that excuse. And so we organized to canvas the community um, to raise awareness about the school and the opportunities that it might present to students and their families um, and took away the excuse so that the next year um, there were some low black boys running around uh, in kindergarten.
0: I love that story. I love that story. I also have seen you in person. And so imagining you and the little people that are (laughs) in kindergarten is definitely, you know, I don't, I I don't remember. I think we've talked about like whether or not we were the same age, but I know my knees don't, you know, I don't have making the stallion knees no more and so being able to get down on the floor with the, the foster kids that my husband and I have is it's a struggle and they yeah. mimic me like they make fun <laughs> of me they be like you know god mommy's getting down on the floor oh oh and I'm like really
1: what the, are they here's here here's,
0: here's the one question I would always say to my colleagues and friends though but are they lying?
1: <laughs> the answer is usually no. So the answer
0: another, is usually here's no. Another, here's
1: another quick story. I uh, So I, I, ta- I also taught third grade, and that's such an interesting age where there's so many transitions, right? Kids are transitioning from learning to read to reading to learn, and, and, and they're hyper aware of their social environment. And I had a student named James who was brutally honest, and we had um, teachers who would come in twice a week to teach our third graders Spanish. And their names were Tina and Talia. And uh, Tina was convinced that James could not uh, distinguish between the two of them, Tina or Talia. And at the end of the semester, we're walking to a restaurant where the kids get to practice ordering food in Spanish or just being in an environment that's different than our classroom. And uh, Tina is harassing James while we're walking, Like literally harassing this boy, like insisting that he can't tell them apart. And James <laughs> literally is walking about in his little business and doesn't scare me, that says, I know who you are. You have the big button, she does it. And then he kept on walking. And before, and before and before Tina could get in our feelings, I was like, you know, you you know. Like, you know. Just so and we're clear. Just so we're he answered your question, so it cannot be asked ever again. So no, yeah, I appreciate he babies keeping difference. us honest.
0: Yeah, babies definitely keep us honest and you know, and keep us young because you know, once upon a time in a college party. I could drop it like <laughs> it's hot, but you know, now I'm struggling and I need AIDS to get down, like, to get down. Lifetime. That's not
1: your ministry.
0: Right, right. <laughs> well, I want to shift gears to what we're talking about. And uh, this past week, the Equality Act passed the House and there was a lot of You know, fanfare and discussion about it, but folks are talking about it being an uncertain future in the Senate. Now we're going to get to the politics of that first. But first, a Reuters poll recently—this was, I I think, last summer—found that most Americans do not know that LGBTQ plus people lack federal protections. That Mm -hmm. only one third of respondents knew that those protections didn't exist. People assume, you know, that they exist, but they did not know that there is no protection for transgender identity. And only a quarter of folks knew that there were no federal protections for lesbian, gay, and bisexual identity. So I want to start first with talking about the Equality Act on its face, what it means, what it includes, and then we'll have a discussion later on about the politics.
1: Yeah, so uh, I appreciate that and the invitation to have this conversation. I want to step back even before we start talking about the Equality Act to lay a foundation upon which we can all then continue to build. Um, And I want to ground this conversation in being really clear that the National Black Justice Coalition is a civil rights organization uh, that focuses on federal public policy to ensure that all Black people can be free. It's important for me to state so that we're clear that as long as there have been black people, even before the terms lesbian and gay existed, there were black LGBTQIA people. Um, I myself uh, use the term same gender loving uh, rather than gay. Gay is a political identifier that is often used to reference things that are important to gay white men. Um, gay often evokes um, ideas of sex and salaciousness. Um, it affirms this idea that non-gay people are normal or traditional which is a social construct, we can talk more about that later. Um, but also I use same gender loving because it centers love, um, a reminder um, that so many of us members of the black community who also have intersectional identities because we are members of sexual minority communities, a political construct, because we have disabilities, a reminder that most black Americans are born with or are made to have a disability as a result of how white supremacy um, and institutional and structural racism show up. Um, those of us who are not native Um, to this country or whose parents speak another language, right? Like um, I'm highlighting the fact that intersectionality matters because there have been so many moments in this movement for radically inclusive social justice that have allowed for us to get to the point of being able to talk about the Equality Act. Uh, So two foundational pieces of legislation um, are the Civil Rights Acts, uh, in particular the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, Both of those suites of legislation, right, they're, they're encompassing it. There's several thousands pages. Um, often people don't uh, uh, think about that when thinking about what it means to codify a law. Uh, but both of those bills provide federal protections for people who uh, sociologist Irvin Goffman would say have minoritized and stigmatized identities. Um, in this context, again, I keep talking about social constructs because it is the fact that Uh, We are not born uh, deficient. Um, uh, None of us are born deficient. The way that we think about difference um, and make connections to deficiency are are a result of um, how people define things socially. Um, Black feminists will talk about a matrix of domination and science systems and symbols that make all this stuff work. Um, But a lot of Black folks think that the work uh, that happened in the modern civil rights movement in particular to pass the Civil Rights Act of 64 allows for, most if not all of us to enjoy the privileges that many white people take for granted. Um, And the sad reality is that that's not true. Similarly, a lot of uh, able-bodied folks, folks that um, did not need or don't need an IEP to be able to show up and uh, show out in schools or don't need accommodations to be able to engage in uh, work or play um, might not appreciate that it it took the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act to compel and in some cases require that employers and public businesses provide accommodation so that people can fully engage and participate. Those bills are important and they still leave foundational holes that need to be addressed. Um, And it's the aim of the Equality Act to fill and address those holes. And so three quick points and then I'll land this plane. One, a lot of folks talk about the benefits of the Equality Act to LGBTQIA people, communities, and families. That is important and it's true because the Equality Act provides a clear and consistent definition of federal protections for people on the basis of sexual identity, gender orientation, or expression. And this is important for a number of reasons. One is that right now, one could be kicked out of an Uber because a driver thinks that you are LGBTQIA thinks that you are not dressed in the way that a person of the gender that they assume that you identify with should be dressed as. And there are no federal protections in that case. Um, I'm in Washington DC right now. My parents are from Austin, Texas. There's a lot going on in Texas. And what I think often is that before the Bostic decision, which is a Supreme Court decision rendered last June that makes it federally illegal, provides federal protection so people cannot be discriminated against with regard to employment. But before that decision, and still in a lot of states throughout this country, I could have a picture of a friend on my desk at work. COVID, a lot of people working from home, but just go with me for a second. I could have a picture of a friend on my desk, a male friend on my desk at work and a supervisor think that that's my partner, and I could be fired for the idea that I might be gay. And so the Equality Act, again, provides fair, consistent federal protections so that those kinds of things, those kinds of discriminations do not happen. The second point is that there are a lot of Black women who are discriminated against in ways that are not protected based on existing, existing civil rights legislation. In California, there was a considerable considerable amount of energy used to pass the Crown Act. Why? Because it is still the case that Black people, Black women, and when I say women, to be clear, I mean cis and trans, are disproportionately targeted for wearing their hair in ways that are very much connected to Afrocentric and African ways of being. The very same hairstyles that folks like Kim Kardashian and Bo Decker and others will be lauded for attempting to emulate employers and schools have pushed students out of the very spaces that they are forced by law to show up in because of how they wear their hair. And in that regard, the Equality Act also provides federal protections that are specifically designed to protect women. Um, The legal term, or the the language in the bill is on the basis of sex. Um, And so it provides, or fills holes rather, um, for discrimination that uh, women often experience. The third point that I think is really important to make is that poor white folks, white folks who live in small, rural and isolated communities, often face discrimination, um, bias and stigma in ways that is often not discussed, especially when we are centering, rightfully so, the importance of anti-Blackness and applying an intersectional lens toward policy and praxis, the space where policy meets practice. But it is the reality that there are communities of white people who are discriminated against to this day and there are no federal protections for them as well. The passage of the Equality Act, which at this point requires action in the Senate, which has not happened heretofore, I know we're gonna come back to that, coupled with recent action, executive actions that the Biden-Harris administration have taken would make it so that white folks, and when I say folks, I'm using F-O-L-X, not K-S, white folks who are discriminated against would have federal recourse in moments where their class or their region might be a source of discrimination. Um, And so I'm saying a lot. um, And in short, what I hope that I'm leaving folks with is an understanding of, one, the Equality Act is the progression of um, and a response to filling holes in foundational federal civil rights policies. Um, in particular the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the American with Disabilities Act. The Equality Act rightfully so does that and responds to the needs of lots of folks and in particular LGBTQIA folks, plus folks who are incredibly diverse um, uh, women, um, again, an acknowledgement of discrimination on the basis of sex, as well as white people uh, who are often erased in conversations about how white supremacy and anti-blackness and its cousins, homophobia, transphobia, trans massage noir, um, uh, limit and restrict opportunities for them as well. And finally, um, while incredibly important, um, I, I heard your uh, point earlier, Eljoy, about most people not knowing that federal protections don't exist. Um, what we do know is that uh, th- there was a poll that said 70% of Americans support um, the passage of the Equality Act, right? Mm-hmm. Two thirds of LGBTQIA plus people report Having experienced some form of discrimination, and again, I want to highlight that that is likely an underreporting, in part because wow. Black folks don't run to the feds. Um, and so, all of this to say that the bill is something that responds to this moment and the movement for Black lives and radically inclusive social justice. Um, and my hope is that members of the Republican caucus in the Senate were watching this last election. We're watching uh, what happened and what uh, Black women led in Georgia. Um, and respond in ways that um, um, show that they're accountable, um, not to themselves or to white supremacy, um, but to the the jobs that they were elected to do by their constituents.
0: We're going to take a quick break here, and then I'll be back with more of my conversation with David Johns on the Equality Act. <laughs>
1: All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the t schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the t shirt I will let you know.
0: Welcome back to Sunday Tisha? Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams. And I'm going to go back to the conversation that I had this week with David Johns, the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition when you talk about the Equality Act and how that can be used by working class and poor white folks in rural areas who often experience similar bias in employment opportunities and housing, put these communities side by side and see they experience some of the same things. Yet the wedge that is being used is they're trying to make your kids gay. Like, that's what the, you know, sort of like the in this legislation. And it don't work like that, sis. Like, it don't work like that. <laughs> like, nobody can make you, like, I don't know. See, if you watched or or learned something, you would know that nobody can make you gay uh, <laughs> from, that, from that standpoint. I'm always like, but does it,
1: somebody make you whatever you are? Like, how, mm-hmm. how, how does it work for other folks in ways that you don't acknowledge that it works for yourself? Like, I'll never forget I was on air with Charlamagne, And he asked uh, a colleague, uh, when did you know, um, I'm almost certain that this person is of trans experience. And so it was like, when did you know that you were trans? And I was like, no, hold on, before you even think about responding to that question, like, when did you know that you are whatever you identify as? And and there was this moment where I think there was, you know, a a cognitive appreciation for the fact that too often we ask questions of and have expectations of other people that we don't have of Mm -hmm. ourselves. And if we just stop for a second and think through that, I think we'd be able to argue better if it gets to that point, but at least have more meaningful discussions.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, talking about the poll, and as you mentioned, most people one, are surprised that federal protections don't exist. But then two, majority of people are like, yeah, people should be protected from this. It's a no brainer, you know, that people shouldn't be discriminated against, that people shouldn't have their job taken away or, you know, their job, their housing, you know, or to just be able to live their lives with dignity and respect based upon what your, you know, perceive, what your fears or your perceptions of, our, of uh, about people. And I want to take this from anytime we have. This discussion of the federal legislation to talk about also what this means in the states. Because, mm-hmm. you know, this the, the Equality Act passes in the House at the same time, and there is legislation being introduced, and in, I think it's now up to 14 states that mm-hmm. are anti <laughs> LGBTQ, which mm-hmm. is, all, you know, bizarre to me. It's just like, of all the things, like, you ain't got mm-hmm. no money to fill your budget gap, and you introduce in legislation on bathrooms that like really mm-hmm. like where are you getting mm-hmm. that money from to fill that hole to feed your people like rather than talking about this
1: because it's big business to build um <laughs> a gender specific bathrooms rather than having gender neutral bathrooms like most people have at their homes well, yeah yeah
0: because, uh-huh, yep. yeah i was just like do you go i don't understand anyway so that what is happening in the states that th- there is this real implication without federal protection without a federal standard, it allows for states like Oklahoma or Montana to introduce legislation that further restricts the rights and the livelihood of LGBTQ plus Americans. Can you talk about, you know, that connection in terms of having a federal standard that provides protections for people in the state, in the place in which you live?
1: Yeah, I can. And uh, I think that um, an effective way to do that is to again, draw parallels, Um, it remains incredibly important for there to be federal protections to ensure that the civil rights of Black people in our beautiful diversity are respected. Um, And that is because we live in a country where there is, at least in theory, um, and enshrined in law, um, a balance between a federal role in providing a framework within which All of us should be operating within which those who have elected or acquired power should be leading um, and state rights. The challenge, the wedge, you mentioned earlier what uh, another sociologist Du Bois named the enduring problem in America as the color line. The manifestation or how that shows up now as it relates to this continued balance is that we have yet to have a conversation about the enduring role of white supremacy the vestiges of transatlantic enslavement, the reliance upon forced, highly profitable labor of stigmatized minority, minoritized communities, especially black folks, in environments where people still profit from our pain. I just wanna let that sit for a second because that's what a lot of this is about. Even with the existing protections, federal protections, of the Civil Rights Acts of of 62, 3, and 4, those of us who are fortunate enough to have survived last year saw one of the deadliest years for Black folks since our lives and the challenges to us thriving have been recorded and shared publicly. I, I will never forget what last June felt like because for me it was a collusion of Black Pride Month. It's June. People celebrate Pride Month. It was the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion, which would not have been a thing if it were not for a Black trans woman named Marsha P. Johnson, who continues to be erased in spite of all that she has done to lay the foundation for what is the LGBTQIA movement. But also because within a week, we witnessed and experienced, because it was everywhere and, and Corona forced us all to sit with it, George Floyd being murdered. This is months after Ahmaud Arbery being murdered, us learning about Breonna Taylor, who was murdered, and the the, the murderers have still not been held accountable. And in the same week that George Floyd was murdered, Tony McDade, a Black trans man, was murdered by the police department in Tallahassee. All of these moments are reflective of the reality that, in spite of so much progress, socially, politically, economically, we still exist in spaces where people in positions of power, people who control access to democratic institutions like public schools or the medical industrial complex or public housing or public transportation, use their power in ways that make it incredibly difficult for people that don't look like them, come from their communities, share code, genetic code or zip code, to be able to access that same opportunity. This is a really long way of saying that we have always been struggling to live up to the founding foundational principles of America being a place where everybody has access to the American dream. That's true in theory, in the the, the myths that we export through television and media to other countries and other places throughout the world. And we still have to do a whole lot of work to one shift the way that people think about, talk about, hold space with, provide opportunities to other people in real time, every single day. And while organizations like NBJC do that work, we talk about it as cultural competence work, um, a lot of it is sexy right now in the de and space, uh, but it's literally helping people understand how, I referenced it earlier, the sign systems and symbols make white supremacy omnipresent that make us think that white supremacy is just white boys with bedsheets on and tiki torches and not understand that white supremacy shows up in laws that make it legal for someone to discriminate or hate or harm someone simply because of who they are and how they show up in the world. And so The Equality Act continues to be important for us to pass. And there's a whole lot of work to do across the state levels. The last thing I'll say about this is that folks that care about Black folks who have been on this hashtag Black Lives Matter, who were compelled to show up and and, and get engaged, should appreciate that Black LGBTQIA folk, we live with other Black people. Um, There's this myth, uh, mostly, uh, promulgated by white Hollywood media that like, you know, white folks um, come out uh, to their family. They might have an uncomfortable conversation, but then everybody rallies around them. They move to a gayborhood like Hollywood, California, or Chelsea, New York, or Boys Town, Chicago. They then get to draw strength and power from not only the white part of their identity, but now the gay part of their identities. Black folks, most of us who are queer, sexual minorities, we live with other black people. We are disproportionately concentrated in the South. We live in states where it is still legal to deny us access to public accommodations, restaurants, medical services and supports, the ability to use gas at a gas station. The same things that we romanticized were problems that were solved in the 60s. Those are problems that exist today. And so it's important for us to not only push to ensure that there are federal protections so that there's a backstop, But we also got a lot of work to do at the state and local level as well.
0: Thank you, David. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk about the politics of this, because as we know, again, people are projecting that it's an uncertain future in the Senate, but it shouldn't be. And we should talk a bit more about that. We'll talk more about that on the other side of the break. How can it be? Williams, your civics teacher, neighborhood political strategist, and joining me is David Johns, the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. And we're having a great conversation, um, informative conversation, not only about the Equality Act, but the context of which Black LGBTQ folks live in this country and the implications of not having federal protections, not only for communities who have have been historically marginalized in this country but for all and david you know we have both alluded to the uncertain future of this act in the senate quite frankly given where we are in terms of political leadership in the senate with a you know democratic leader although it is split in between and there's a lot to get done in the Senate. And we, it remains to be seen between this, you know, 18 months or 15 months, if you will, as people move into midterms of how we how Democrats will hold on to power, and what they will do with this power and talking to senators, as I have in the past couple of weeks, they talk about needing the supermajority, they talk about getting rid of the filibuster, they talk about that they have certain priorities that they want to get done whether it's focusing on getting money to Americans because of the pandemic. So there is the economic recovery that needs to happen, talking about voting rights. They're talking about passing H.R. 1. They're talking about all these things that they want to get done. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, I was on a, a call with Senate leadership. The Equality Act didn't come up. hmm And the question when posed is whether or not they have the support, whether or not they have the votes for it. And so that's why people are talking about the context of this. And we've seen just this uh, past week with the passage um, in the House where there is the gear up, if you will, from folks who are opposing this. And they're using very narrow pieces, as you mentioned And scare tactics as to the reason Mm -hmm. why this can't be passed. I wanted to hear your take on, you know, what specifically now that it is in the Senate, giving people an action item, a civics homework, if you will, they can Mm -hmm. do to force this, which we already know most Americans want to happen.
1: Yeah. Who That was a lot. Um, so let's be clear. No, don't be sorry. I'm not, I don't know Beyonce. Sorry, not sorry. Don't be sorry. Don't apologize for things you should not apologize for. Um, it was a lot appropriately so. Um, one, you can't force, um, anything in the Senate. Um, and that's by design, right? Um, unlike the House of Representatives where, um, there are more than 400, um, members apportioned based on congressional districts that are drawn in sometimes problematic ways, but are supposed to be Um, representative of proportional populations in their districts, Uh, members in the United States Senate serve longer term, six-year terms, um, and are elected to slow down what would otherwise be the the expedient rate at which things move through the House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives, things move by majority consensus. In the Senate, they do not. Um, And it's just important to understand the historical context um, of that controls how they operate, because there's a difference. I worked in both chambers, they're dramatically different. In the Senate right now, again, in part because there is not a majority. The Democrats have control of the Senate because Vice President Kamala Harris, shout out to black women, South Asian women, women um, has a tie-breaking vote but the reality is that in order for anything to move through that body, the support of some members of the Republican caucus is required. That's just where we are. Yeah. And I will name that I don't like it. But for the reasons that it has slowed down what would otherwise to me be regressive movement in the opposite direction, I respect it. Second part of this, the opposition in the Senate heretofore has been that Mitch McConnell... <laughs> supports white supremacy in all forms and has leveraged the leadership of the Senate when he was the majority leader to not allow it to even come up for consideration. Right, That's different now that Schumer is the leader of that chamber. He has the ability to schedule time for there to be a debate, a discussion of the bill. But before that happens, there has to be an indication that some of the members of the Republican caucus, again, will support the bill. Mm -hmm. What we know, based on the tactics that are employed every time this happens, right, the uh, Equality Act has been introduced in at least the last six congressional cycles, our our, um, calendar years that I can think of, um, and it's passed the House unanimously last year. It passed with the uh, uh, support of every member of the Congressional Black Caucus, which is significant again. I just want to highlight that like progress while slow is often meaningful, and in this case, is measurable. But what tends to happen is that members of the Republican caucus who are white supremacists, are believe in white supremacy as a political tool that also supports economic be- interests of some of them, will hide behind religion and use religion to try and explain away, dismiss, or make okay their desire to persecute people are, make them victims of hate crimes, simply because of who they are and how they show up in the world. And we should just be clear about that. Just as clear as I am, as the son or the grandson, rather, of a Baptist preacher from Austin, Texas, Reverend James Lemieux got arrested, so buried in January, um, everyone should have the freedom to worship and celebrate in religious community in the ways that make them feel good. And doing so should not infringe upon somebody else's ability to, as you said earlier, uh, live with dignity and respect. And so there will continue to be a narrative from hyper-conservative folks who will hide behind religion and use that as an excuse to perpetuate, marginalize, and otherwise victimize people. And this isn't new. Religion was used to explain, defend, and justify transatlantic enslavement. It was used to explain and defend hyper-aggressive forms of racialized terror that we saw trying to prevent people from exercising their right to vote or to otherwise push for the kinds of legislation that has allowed us to see the progress that has been yielded heretofore. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't be deterred by this. We should acknowledge it for what it is and continue to work with leaders who were elected by constituents who will benefit from the passage of this legislation. And so it requires those of us who do this kind of work to make some of these things clear, to highlight for folks in rural, isolated communities, Black folks live in those areas too, right? Like there's data around that. We often assume that all of us are in major metropolitan spaces. That's just not true, right? Like there are ways that all of us win when we don't allow white supremacy to be the guiding force that dictates all of our actions. Um, And so cutting through some of the BS um, and helping to make these uh, constellations clearer to people, um, I hope will allow us to get to the point where some members of the Republican caucus federally will support this act so it can be uh, conferred after passed through both chambers and then sent to um, President um, Biden's desk for passage. And I hope that we'll keep that same energy um, throughout uh, uh, state houses um, uh, and senates uh, around the country because, as we referenced earlier, there's still a whole lot more work that will need to be done uh, if and when uh, the Equality Act becomes federal
0: law. Right. So, you know, I uh, was reading more about this and because I'm a geek and I read the actual bill and then, you know, go down the rabbit hole of... (laughs) Different amendments or whatever. Like how I know. Support. I know.
1: Uh-huh, right. that's how I be.
0: Like mm-hmm. you know, because you know, I'm a and geek. That wasn't anyway.
1: the details. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm.
0: But I've also found myself going down the rabbit hole of reading some of the opinions and discussions of people who are currently either outrightly opposing the bill and you know we we know some of them again are basing some of their arguments on religious purposes on you know they believe they want to turn everybody you know into some kind of cartoon character i read somebody's op-ed and i was like what are you even who approved and edited this (laughs) like you know but i i found myself on this uh conversation was particularly focused on sports And there Mm -hmm. was a Mm op-ed in USA Today, and there's this whole sort of category of folks who have, you know, some who are outrightly opposing the entire act because of it. But Mm -hmm. then there are people who are, you know, trying to change language or put additional amendments as it pertains to sports. And the piece I read in Mm -hmm. USA Today was talking about, you know, there are right now separate fields for sports in schools, right? So there's like women's basketball, fo- you know, mm-hmm. volleyball and sort of all that stuff. And they seem to be of the mindset that the passage of the Equality Act would somehow infringe on mm-hmm. those franchises, if you will, because I, I'm reading some of people that are really concerned about their money. But can you explain, because I haven't yet grasped specifically you know, what they are referencing or sort of what is in danger that passage of the Equality Act would somehow nope. pick- Nope, it's, I can't
1: help you grasp it because there's nothing oh, they're
0: grasping this like, They're trying to mean, hold on to it. Nope. Because
1: I was like, nope. I, was like I don't see. Think... Nope. Okay, Nope, they're all making right, it up. Okay. It's like okay. Elsa in Frozen. mm nope. <laughs> um, so let me say this in response to all of that. Um, two areas that come up a lot in terms of discussion um, um, are bathrooms and sports. Um, and I, one, want to make clear that I have a number of incredibly talented colleagues, um, a number of whom um, uh, are of trans experience, are trans people, um, and I, I would love to connect you with them so that they can have um, a conversation informed by that experience as it relates to this topic. And it's important for me to clarify that there's a, there's a lot of conflation that happens with the goal of just trying to confuse people. So they get to the point of saying, this don't make sense to me. And as a result, this should not happen. A part of what's going on here is a conflation of what we crudely and often don't understand with regard to death as sex, and then gender as we think about gender identity. And the two get conflated. And and it happens when we talk about sports in particular So there's this idea, and it's been offered up by Senator Rand Paul at a confirmation hearing of whom I can't recall at this particular moment, but his logic suggests that once the Equality Act, which provides federal protections against discrimination, there's nothing that I have read in the legislation I would love for him or a member of his staff to point it out should it be there. There's nothing in the law that says, for example, a uh, recreational municipal or um, sports activity operated by a local educational agency. So school would be required to remove the rules, restrictions, or whatever has made it such that we continue to say that boys show up in one way and girls show up in another way. It just doesn't do that.
0: I was just, it's not I in was the confused. bill. I, w- I was trying to find it. And I couldn't find it. It's not, it's not it. there. I've I looked several times and it's not there and I want them to, sh-
1: to show me. And so again, it it plays on the the, 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 the the best parts of white supremacy and the thing that I keep holding on to, and it's a crude analogy, but just go with me for a second, is the fact that like people cannot take the fact that Serena Williams is the greatest athlete ever. Period, full stop. I don't care what sport you want to name, what person you want to throw up and their their accomplishments, team, individual, Serena, she's she's the goat. And it vexes people. It vexes folks who think that tennis is a white sport or a place for elites, meaning that we should dominate there. It vexes people who think that an athlete should be male and want to often offer up men who accomplished most of what they accomplished because they were stellar athletes, but also a part of teams. And it diminishes the fact that we like to imagine barriers and boundaries around people and what's possible. And for a long time, there was this myth that like men are powerful and, and, and men do things that women are not capable of doing. And Serena Williams and Michelle LeVon Robinson Obama and Beyonce Giselle Knowles and Sage Dolan Sandrino and Laverne Cox and Angelica Ross and Eljoy Williams. There are so many women who demonstrate the flaw in that lie. And it makes folks who feel good about themselves at a minimum uncomfortable. And so that's what's really happening here. And, I, and I, I want us to ask the kinds of questions you are asking so we can be clearer about that. The second thing is this comes up when we have conversations about queer stuff, but it's about bathrooms. And I think to myself two things that have come up for me time and time again. My mother and I had a conversation when I talked to her about having a mentee who at the time was a five-year-old trans girl, um, Ellie. I love her. She's beautiful every time I think about her, I think about us on the floor coloring Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, And what I know is that Ellie had a doctor who assigned her boy, male, the gender M at birth. And the doctor was just wrong. The, everything that the doctor had access to—the science, the, the 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 what becomes normal, traditional expectations—affirmed him in making an educated guess. Sometimes, at its purest form, that's what the practice of medicine comes down to. And the doctor was wrong, and and my mother had a, a really hard time understanding that. Right, like. She could allow her mind to appreciate the Tuskegee experiment or what happened to Henrietta Lacks or the ways that the medical industrial complex is used to affirm white supremacy, but did not want to let herself understand how a doctor could be wrong in assigning gender. And and then she latched on this story about, like, not wanting her granddaughter, my niece, to be in a bathroom with a trans person. And she believed, wrongfully so, because the myth exists that trans folks are not normal, that there is an increased predisposition to doing things nefarious with children. And all of that, again, is wrong. What the data shows is that kids are often harmed by people who know them. Sexual identity, gender orientation or expression uh, don't necessarily enhance that. And with regard to bathrooms, I had to help her appreciate most bathrooms in the United States of America are gender neutral. They are gender neutral. They're, they're they are. Can
0: I just placed- get the keys to the bathroom? It's not the key to the women's bathroom. <laughs> it's I didn't wanna, not the I key to the, like,
1: go to the bathroom. Can I just and go th- to
0: the bathroom?
1: And that's it. And then and then the educator in me, when I think about how all of this comes up in schools, think to myself, like I taught kindergarten, and the thing that mattered most is that they didn't go on my floor. They didn't peel on the rug. <laughs> like if 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 you if if if, if with all that's going on in the world, with the novel coronavirus, the economic crisis, the, the crisis of conscience, the fact that white supremacy and insurrectionists just try to coup, right? Like with all of the things going on in the world, we should be clear that conversations around sports in this way, conversations around sports, and I'm talking about the crude bastardization of what we're actually trying to do here around sports and bathrooms, are around control, mm-hmm. they're around profit, right? Like building new bathrooms and schools that are specific to genders in ways that like make adults feel good. And then aren't necessarily required. Like that's big business for some. And again, otherwise these policies where we get to police people and then push them like out of schools and into prisons, um, uh, um, people are profiting, profiting off of that. Um, And so let's not be lost about what's going on here. Well, you
0: know, the thing that's, the thing that's interesting that listening to your story talking about is that the conversation that you had you know, was a conversation you had to have with family members to walk them through that. So some of this work that we have to do is not only about passing legislation for federal protections, because that stuff needs to happen, right? These are things that we have to beat back against of legislators taking people's fears and warping them into this perversion as to the reason why we can't have laws in place to protect people's dignity, to protect people's very lives. And so it's also about us going to our family members, going to our communities, in our communities and having those conversations about like, let's not fall into this fear here. Like, this doesn't make sense. So it's not just about what needs to happen in terms of legislation to protect people's lives, to protect people's jobs, to protect people from being thrown out of their homes, to protect people from being unfairly targeted by police officers and others. But it's also the work that we have to do, as you mentioned, talking about that social construct and that we have to break you know, wrapping this up to go back to your uh, earlier point on your first civic action in dealing with children. Children get this real quick. They're not confused. They're not, you know, know, anything. It's really adults that sort of put upon children, you know, these fears and these attitudes that they then, you know, further perpetuate as they become adults. But if you talk to a child about, you know, but they just want to go to the bathroom, you know, if you talk to a play child friends, about right, friends, they just want to play with their frolic. friends, and we're just going. They like adjust, right? Like based mm-hmm. upon the people they mm-hmm. want to play with and engage with, based upon them as human beings. Mm-hmm. And so, there's the work that we have to do legislatively that people have the basics of human dignity and protections and legal protections to uh, protect their livelihood. But then there is the work that we have to do within our communities, within our homes, within our Mm -hmm. families, so that we continue to grow that base of support of people who are in favor of making sure that we have protections, you know, for people who do not fit this narrow view of what, you know, human beings should be.
1: I'm just like, yeah, this is, this is why what you do is so important because the, at the risk of being for I know you're trying to rap, uh, but my spirit is like, yes, yeah, just affirm this because the connection between the work federally and the work at the community is storytelling. Um, it is helping people who would otherwise uh, hear about or see that baby and think that there's something wrong with that baby, that that baby's difference means that there's a deficit when in fact it's just a difference. Um, mm-hmm. And in the same way that the baby shifted to accommodate we should think about democratic institutions also shifting and accommodating, so that people can just be, <laughs> and and and, yeah. and and not only that, but like do the things that uh, that people otherwise take for granted or that they they privilege and protect for themselves. Like it just it shouldn't be this difficult, but I understand why it is, and I just hope that more people will get engaged, so that one day soon we can all be free.
0: One day soon, we will all be free. Thank you very much, David, for joining us. You'll have to come back to talk about many more things. I feel as if we can, you know, nerd out together since both of us read conference reports. (laughs) Thank you so much, David. And thank you all for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Sigvix. Thanks for listening.